I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. Images of extreme forms of institutional violence are all around us. But when we see bodies unearthed from mass graves in Ukraine, security forces firing on demonstrators in Iran, or arrests that become lethal beatings in the United States, we often understand these cases of violence in similar ways. When we focus on individuals, they're cast in terms of age-old racial, ethnic, or religious hatreds. When we look at regimes or their security forces, they're explained in terms of deeply rooted despotic histories or cultures of aggression. Quite often, larger cultural or historical forces are held to blame. Through her research on Syria, University of London professor Salwa Ismail argues that violence also needs to be understood as a deliberate, even scientific, method of rule. Extreme forms of violence, such as torture or massacres, or ordinary forms of surveillance and policing, are used to dehumanize, debilitate, and crush the will of citizens to resist and dissent. Violence as a method of rule has an enduring effect by using fear and terror to sear itself into the memory of its victims. To delve into this subject in greater detail, I'm very pleased to welcome Salwa Ismail to discuss her book, The Rule of Violence, Subjectivity, Memory, and Government in Syria. Salwa, thank you for joining this episode of Realms of Memory. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased to be joining you um, to speak about the book. And uh, I think it's really wonderful that you're bringing these issues of memory and the role in kind of forming a political subject or the role in, in politics in general uh, to a wider audience. So thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. So the focus of your book is on the uses and the implications of of violence uh, under the Assads, but there's a there's a larger framework for this. There's a uh, you mentioned there's a whole legal framework that makes this kind of this extreme, the extreme and the ordinary forms of violence that you talk about. There's a legal framework that makes this possible. Um, could you talk a little bit about what this is? These special emergency powers uh, that that are put in place long before uh, the Assads are on the scene. Well, the emergency rule or the state of emergency was declared in 1963 um, upon the emergence of the Ba'ath as the Ba'ath Party, which was a kind of an Arab nationalist party that came to power in 1963. So upon the emergence of this party, um, there was a state of emergency, which provided kind of a, uh, a legal framework for um the forms of political participation that would be allowed uh, for kind of regulating state society relations, but emergency rule, which is not just kind of um, uh, limited to Syria. It's a, it's a framework that has been used to, you know, in many other settings. And it's a framework that allows government, to, you know, to declare a kind of an exception uh, uh, to the rule whereby uh, or to the in a sense, it's, a, it's kind of a suspension of legality. So although it is a legal framework, but it is to bring elements of illegality into how the state, how governments, the regimes manage their population. So and it's therefore kind of can be also referred to as the rule of exception. Um, so within this framework, it's possible to suspend uh, the normal uh, um, or, or the conventional laws and to bring in kind of exception to these uh, laws. So, and they can be applied 
without restrictions in a way. Like so, there is a, a great deal of arbitrariness to uh, the application of uh, that's kind of in the nature of the rule of exception. This is arbitrarily uh, implemented. So, so to give you an example of what kind of a uh, state of emergency would be would would do would be uh, to kind of identify, uh, but as at will and whim, uh, uh, any activity as being threatening uh, to um, the the uh, kind of uh, the raison d'état to, to the to the uh, the state to the regime to the people of the nation. So um, you know we have in in Syria these kinds of uh, 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 rules of exception allowed arrest uh, without charges. And that's something that you also, you know, countries, other countries in the Middle East had. So uh, Egypt, for example, had a state of emergency from 1981 until the revolution in 2011. And under the uh, state of emergency, then it's possible to arrest people without a charge or clear charge and to detain them for indefinite periods of time. And just uh, constructing them as people who are kind of threatening the uh, peace, uh, threatening um, the nas- national interest, the public interest, and so on. So under very kind of loose charges and without um, submission to the conventional rules and laws regarding, um, you know, um, kind of, uh, what would be con- con- constituted as a political crime or any kind of crime um, as such. Uh, the, the emergency laws which allowed, you know, kind of this, Kind of control of the population were also, you know, complemented by other laws in the, um, in the in the criminal code, whereby there was a criminalization of association, something that you also had in other uh, kind of authoritarian uh, regimes in the region, whereby you know it was declared the gathering of more than three people would be um, uh, illegal, and people can be arrested if there is a you know kind of a meeting of more than three people, um, and. Um, uh, of course, there is a kind of monopolization of the political sphere whereby, and this is more, was more of a constitutional rather than, you know, a um, uh, set out necessarily in the legal framework, the, the constitution set out the Ba'ath party as the leading party, as having monopoly over kind of the political sphere and uh, and deciding who, uh, you know, who were its interlocutors or who would be allowed, uh, you know, a, a, to... Uh, play a part in in the policy uh, and and basically it was a complete monopoly over the political sphere. Uh, although nominally there were other uh, parties that were subsumed within kind of a union of um, or a, some kind of a, a, a national union um, a political union, but the Ba'ath Party was the dominant party and monopolized you know all the political spaces uh, as such. And so any activity outside of that was also criminalized. With these emergency powers and this emergency rule, which lasted for 50 years, was this justified in a particular way? I mean, was it uh, was there a crisis that it, that it, it it was explained in terms of or objectives that that required it? I mean, how was it uh, justified? Um, I think this was in the nature of many of the revolutionary. Uh, regimes of of the time, you know, these the the Ba'ath Party as a kind of an, an Arab nationalist and uh, you know uh, quote unquote socialist re- uh, regime that you know um, 
justified it in revolutionary terms that, you know, there were the, so in the law, for example, uh, in articles of the law, the criminalization of kind of an anti-revolution, there was a criminalization of activity that would, would be deemed anti-revolution, anti the socialist uh, uh, project, basically, let's say. Um, so they were uh, justified in relationship to that, but also justified in relationship to, you know, uh, uh, the state the state of war, war that, you know, that the, the uh, uh, Syria and many other parts, uh, other countries in the region had, you know, like Egypt, for example, had with Israel as well. Uh, so I think there were references to many threats to the nation and to the socialist project in which, um, which then there were kind of enemies without, but also enemies within. Uh, and, and, and as I say in the book, what well, it turned out that the enemies were, were within were the greatest, uh, the biggest target for the uh, Assad regime. Now, you mentioned it's not just a a case of uh, emergency rule, emergency powers, uh, that uh, there's this larger framework of civil war, that you can't really understand this regime unless you see it as a regime that's in a state of perpetual civil war against its own people. Yes, I mean, what I said earlier about, you know, the condition upon which this emergency was declared, I mean, this was continuously kind of the discourse justifying it, of course, kept, keeps on being revised in reference to, they said, those enemies within. So with the, uh, Hafez al-Assad comes to power in 1970 and, um, and uh, with his ascendance, you know, various and, and kind of the, the move towards greater authoritarianism uh, and the banishing of all questioning or opponents of the regime and so on, um, there uh, we see opposition from various segments of the population. One of them is the Muslim Brotherhood, which, uh, you know, from the mid the late 70s kind of emerges as a, as a main force of contestation against the regime. But, it, but by, by no means wasn't the only force of contestation. There was a, also a large uh, leftist contingency, a labor communist party, uh, a ver- various uh, uh, communist formations and leftist formation, uh, progressive forces, which were also opposed to the regime. Uh, it was in the name of, you know, kind of overcoming an Islamist challenge, uh, especially, you know, at, uh, in 1980, whereby some of these Islamist forces engaged in violent uh, activities against the, the, the regime, wh- whereby this kind of uh, state of emergency was intensified and, you know, kind of uh, applied to all opponents of the regime. So the suspension of all liberties, greater imp- imprisonment, um, uh, the use of a, you know, kind of a incarceration to silence opponents, and then um, uh, 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 the the kind of the, the bigger threat, at least uh, what appeared to be the bigger public threat at at one point was uh, coming from a militant uh, offshoot uh, breakaway segment of the Muslim Brotherhood by the name of the um, Fighting Vanguard, who uh, at one point, and, and this is at sometime in 1982, um, uh, uh, kind of declared a takeover of Hama, uh, which then was kind of the background against which the regime um, 
assaulted Hama and large massacres occurred. It, it should be noted that, you know, the regime had committed smaller massacres, quote unquote, smaller massacres earlier. So in 1980, you know, in Aleppo and, and other uh, parts of the country, again, where there was an Islamist opposition. Uh, but as the regime, you know, kind of intensifies its use of violence as a way of governing people, as a way of teaching them, you know, the terms of government, rule of relations between the regime and the people, um, we also see kind of a, a, an entrenchment of greater polarization and this kind of what I would call the create the creation of or the establishment of a permanent uh, civil war. And this permanent civil war uh, even if there wasn't really kind of an, necessarily uh, people fighting each other, the regime created this fissure or, or a kind of a divided line between the us and them, you know, the us, those who were thought the pro-regime or anyone who's kind of loyal uh, was the patriot. They were the true patriots. They were the true, true nationalists. All opponents of the regime were kind of traitors, were the enemies, were the dupes of foreign powers, uh, of, of uh, Israel or Zionist, uh, U.S. imperialism, and so on. And uh, these were enemies that were, you know, kind of their punishment was either um, uh, like the Muslim Brotherhood, their punishment would be by death. And in fact, that was kind of a, a, a part of the legal changes that membership of the Muslim Brotherhood became pu- punishable by death. Or they would be, uh, you know, incarcerated for indefinite periods of time. Uh, these kinds of practices, along with kind of the, the, uh, the arming of segments of the population that were seen to be, were deemed to be loyal. So the Assad regime uh, armed uh, tribes, uh, uh, tribal formations, you know, in parts of Aleppo, uh, um, and and yeah, and. Um, uh, and also armed, uh, you know, peasants, armed uh, uh, loyalist students from the auxiliaries of the Ba'ath Party. So arming civilians to take on other civilians who are deemed to be enemies of the uh, of of the regime. You're really getting at the broad nature of this is not just the security apparatus versus the people, uh, it uh, versus a segment of the population that's 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 um, characterized as the opposition. Um, but I, I wanted to go back a minute. Uh, when you talk about the uses of violence, uh, uh, the state has these special emergency powers. Uh, it's it's caught up in the civil war. Uh, the population is divided in terms of those who are seen as loyal or opposed to the regime, and it uses these powers and it uses violence in extraordinary and ordinary ways. And one of the main mechanisms you mentioned is the prison system. And it sets up this network of prisons and targets segments of the population for arrest and rehabilitation. And others have less of a chance of being real rehabilitated. Could you talk a little bit about how this this how significant is this network of prisons and how does it seek to transform those who it, it detains in in Know, in in ways that seem to be at odds with our our understanding of how prisons are supposed to work today. Well, to begin with, the uh, kind of the attempt or the objective of controlling the population rested on a an extensive security apparatus, so that uh, the 
uh, Assad regime had a, a, a 17 uh, different um, security forces or uh, security different kinds of security units. So, like a uh, uh, intelligence, you know, security intelligence, military intelligence, air force intelligence, and uh, and and so on. And these security uh, apparatuses had presence throughout the Syrian territory. So they had presence uh, in uh, not not just in large cities, or uh, but in old towns, in old villages, and so on. Um, and they worked by by uh, recruiting watchers uh, to survey the population and to report any uh, kind of a transgression or deviation from the Ba'athist line, from the loyalist line, uh, with the result that actually uh, many people, large number of people were um, uh, over the years uh, under Hafez al-Assad from um, you know, the 1970s until his death in 2000, um, were arrested in interrogation. And so it is... It, it, we don't have definite figures, but we know it, it's possible that around, you know, 100,000 people, uh, you know, went through some of the main prisons. So, so that means that more than that, actually. Uh, so we're processed for uh, arrest and interrogation. Tadmor prison, the Palmyra prison, which was the most notorious and um, uh, um, had the, the worst of, in terms of uh, reputation of, you know, the use of uh, violence, torture uh, and so on. Uh, had about twenty thousand people, um, political prisoners, go through it. So it, it it's kind of an indication of how extensive uh, the use of the political prison uh, was in kind of upholding um, the regime and how it became part of the system of government. Um, now the forms of violence that uh, happened uh, or were administered uh, administered to the political prisoners were. Um, when we look at the memoirs of political uh, prisoners and various other kinds of accounts from human rights uh, reports, uh, they are kind of challenging trying to understand uh, what their purpose or objective was. On the one hand, imprisonment itself could be seen as okay, it's a silencing mechanism. It's a, it's a way of banishing opponents, putting them away for a definite amount of time uh, so that you know the regime is not kind of challenged by them is not uh, questioned. Uh, but what we see in the prison is the use of um, um, extreme forms of violence that are de um, debasing, dehumanizing, degrading uh, uh, the prisoners. And trying to puzzle out that, you know, and it's done in a very systematic ma manner. It's not, and it's not just done by, you know, as an exception by sadist uh, prison guard, but it's done by all um, you know, the kind of the prison uh, uh, officials. Uh, so it could be also high-ranking officers. And many of the um, uh, former political prisoners who wrote memoirs or gave their testimonies spoke of fairly high-ranking officers as well as the lower ranking guards involved in the same kinds of degrading treatments. So it, it, it's kind of had a scope or a range that included, of course, uh, the continuous, the use of um, physical violence. So the beating, the kicking, the shoving, uh, but, but would extend to uh, more severe forms of uh, torture in which various kinds of apparatuses or um, devices were used on the bodies of the prisoners to inflict on them great pain. 
Um, as I talk in the book from the memoirs, we know that you know, they, this degrading treatment included also um, a, a kind of um, practices uh, that uh, were very demeaning. So not only they were kicked and punched and insulted, but they were forced to commit self-polluting acts. Um, and these are kind of shocking uh, to read about and learn of, but but there were kind of regular practices um, that uh, I, I came to the conclusion that this is really about negating their sense of self, uh, kind of make, making not not only the prisoners abandon their political beliefs or uh, uh, and, um, objectives uh, or convictions, but rather also to negate them as a kind of political, as as not only as political subjects but as human, to deny them their humanity to create in them self-repulsion by making them, they said, commit self-polluting acts. So we kind of, some of the accounts tell us that they were forced to eat soiled food, food soiled with excrement or with uh, urine, uh, forced to drink soiled, uh, uh, maybe sewage, open from open sewage, uh, and so on. These are um, very repulsive things to read about, let alone to um, be sub subjected to. And from the account, we know that this had a kind of a, a uh, this was the, 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 the more severe uh, forms of violence that were committed and, and had the greater, um, the greatest adverse effect uh, from the accounts, the memoirs, um, the, uh, and the narratives and the testimonials that we have from former political prisoners. But again, your point is that there's a purpose to this, right? Because if you just view this through the maybe the Western lens of Orientalism, it might be easy just to dismiss this as a, a as a timelessly backward culture relying on violence. But I think what you're stressing is that there's a, almost a silence, a science to this of how you destroy the individual, how you shatter the identity of the individual, break all resistance, so that you so that you can end up with someone in the end, who's, who's loyal to the state again. It's not to, at least for, for the most part, it's not to uh, uh, eliminate, it's to re-educate, transform, to, to, to take a disloyal subject and make him back into a loyal citizen. Yes, I mean, I think it, we, it, reading this through, uh, you're absolutely right, through Orientalist and Orientalist lens that as well, you know, this is kind of a medieval barbaric um forms of punishment really one is is kind of ignores the fact that similar kinds of punishment are also conducted in you know um, in prisons or incarceration in in the more civilized and western world um, it, um, as well so uh, you know we have accounts from the treatment of IRA prisoners in uh, um, in uh, Northern Ireland uh, that was that, that that also tell us that the prisoners uh, were uh, so subjected to similar things, eating soiled food and uh, um, uh, and the like. So it, these kinds of demeaning, and we also know that in in, in other forms of you know kind of violence committed in, um, against populations that are seen to be. Uh, um, lesser or kind of targeted um, 
uh, in Western settings that include a lot of demeaning practices uh, by uh, pol the police and security forces. Just we think of the treatment of African-American men who are profiled um, uh, as suspicious subjects and the kind of violence that is committed against them and their bodies. Um, so it's, it, it would be, and, and, it, and in these are about taming uh, um, subjects who are seen to be not tamed and uh, this is one way of getting through them by breaking their soul, uh, not reforming their soul in Foucault's sense, but breaking their soul, whereby they cannot raise their heads, they cannot look you up in the eye, and therefore they become more tame subject. Um, so there is nothing particularly specific to an oriental culture about that. And you're right, there is a science to that, um, because it is... And it, and it, and if we look in you know, accounts from various prisons, we'll see that it's not only a, a, a Middle Eastern uh, phenomenon. Now, why there is a science to this? Because it does work on people's effect. I mean, if you feel demeaned and debased uh, and belittled and kind of subhuman, you don't have the courage. It's a way of sapping the energies and the courage and, and the sense of oneself sense of oneself and one's self-respect. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, in, in the book, I actually do compare these kinds of practices with earlier, with other uh, uh, settings. So we, you know, not, um, similar practices are seen in Turkish prisons, uh, 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 imprisonment of uh, um, Kurdish uh, uh, opponents, um, uh, in the, in the 1980s and 90s, for example, we see this in accounts of uh, Nazi prisons and uh, accounts of uh, 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 Soviet uh, 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 prisons or prisons during, you know, in the in the Soviet uh, era. Uh, um, uh, so I think that the the kind of the the technology, if we can call it that behind this is really working on people's effects, their sense of self, their self-respect, um, and the kind of memories that this creates. So, um, uh, which, uh, you know, in from the accounts of prisoners, you know, uh, the fear that was instilled of that in, in them from uh, such practices uh, and their kind of attempts to not be subject to them. Uh, one of the... Uh, former political prisoners talks about kind of imagines what he would feel about himself thinking at one point relieved for not being the target of this, but another person being the target of this. And so we have a sense of fear of having these memories of cowardice, because, you know, if you kind of can't stand up to this level of violence, if you cannot face it, uh, how how could you then continue and survive as a kind of maintain one's self one's integrity and, and and be able to be kind of a continue as a, not just a political subject, but as a human being. Hmm. But you do mention that there are people, there are prisoners, even under the most dire circumstances that, who retain their humanity, who, who, who find a way to, to resist. Uh, how, how does this work and how is memory a, a, a factor in that? I think, you know, the prisoners understood, you know, what the duel was about, it, that this, this, what they were being subjected to was, was precisely 
you know, to negate their humanity. And so the resistance was to hold on to their humanity. It was, they, they knew the limits of what they could do in the sense of, you know, should they decide, I think, you know, should they decide to go on, on a hunger strike, for example, it would have been fined by the prison guards and the managers um, and of the system to that, let them start to death. In fact, of course, you know, in, in the 80s and the 90s, there were, you know, there were not really provided with uh, proper nutrition and they kind of left to die because of lack of nutrition or because of diseases and so on. So they didn't really have such tools even, you know, to resist uh, the regular tools, which is going on a hunger strike, for example. Uh, but what they could do is to hold on to their humanity through other practices. Um, they, so from the accounts, for example, we learned that they... Um, um, it created tools that kind of between uh, two um, tools or implements uh, um, to make kind of a human life in the in the in their cells. Uh, they um, made uh, implements to eat with um, because they weren't really given such. Uh, they they made various other things to kind of to maintain human life, but they also showed courage uh, in terms of uh, uh, some of them came up to be a frontline uh, um, um, uh, in 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 their cells. In you know uh, every day they were being asked to, for example, to come to the front of the the, the gates of their cells to collect the, the the food for the entire cell. But in in in, in, in that time of collection, they would be beaten up. So the younger ones and those who were better, uh, felt, you know, better positioned, they put themselves forward uh, to take the beating in front uh, instead of others. So, in, you know, it, there were many, many um, uh, gestures of uh, bravery in, in taking punishment uh, in lieu of, you know, a fellow prisoner, for example. Um, and this was, not, was common. It wasn't, you know, exceptional. Um, but they were also in the in you know other things that to maintain onto their humanity they you know uh, memorized uh, they taught one another um, various um, passages of books that they memorized whether it was from the Quran or from other books that they've read uh, they've taught other, one another subjects that they knew about um, and um, they committed to memory as well and that was part of holding on to kind of thinking of a future in which they can remember so they committed to memory events of uh, that were happening in in an entire entire days uh, of what was going on in the prison they committed to memory uh, one of the memoir writers uh, committed to, to memory the uh, the layout of the uh, of the prison uh, of the cells, um, uh, and uh, he went on to kind of provide a diagram or a um, uh, kind of a map of what the uh, the prison layout looked uh, looked like um, in in a memoir. Um, talking here about Barat Saraj, who wrote from uh, Tadmor to Harvard. Uh, so, uh, and they also, you know, um, just before being taken to be. Um, I mean, some of them were subject to ex uh, summary execution, and they knew that. They made testaments and wills, you know, to be passed on to uh, their loved ones, uh, it, and, and and other prisoners um, 
uh, you know, kind of administered burial, uh, not burial rites, but funerary rites. So in all of this, I think, you know, in, in a kind of variety of practices, they wanted to hold on to um, their sense of being human beings and to treat themselves and others as such. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned within this context of uh, a civil war uh, uh, and uh, you're using violence, extreme forms of violence, and the prison is is one instrument that's available to the government. There's also the use of massacres. And this is something that you mentioned uh, grows in prominence uh, in response to the rise of Islamic it's insurgency in the late 1970s and early 1980s. How much of a real threat was this to the regime? Um, and what uh, what was the scale? What were the uses of, of, of massacres uh, as as a means of uh, as a means of domination? Yes, I mean the Hama. Uh, what came to be known as the Hama events, which were the massacres that uh, took place in 1982. Uh, beginning in early February of 1982, when armed divisions um, of the, the Syrian army, as well as various kind of um, militia, paramilitary uh, groups, uh, assaulted the city. Um, and so they, this assault began with a siege, a siege of the city and, and then kind of a uh, uh, an entry of these forces into the city and the city, and they stayed in there for uh, four weeks until the end of, uh, of February. Uh, and throughout this period, about you know, there were massacres on a daily basis uh, throughout the city. Now, this happened on as a on the pretext that there was an Islamist insurgency, uh, a, the militant group known as the Fighting Vanguard, declared that it had. Uh, control of the city and taking it over or back from the Ba'ath Party. Uh, now, we don't really have exact numbers uh, uh, about you know how many there were of fighters, but the estimates are in the hundreds. So they don't really amount to a thousand armed fighters. Uh, and uh, th- as I said, this was an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, a small group. It, there is no evidence that it had white support uh, in Hama or anywhere uh, within the country itself. Um, and it had actually no source of arming and very limited in, uh, resources. And we get this from the um, memoirs of former um, uh, leaders of the fighting vanguard. So by all accounts, actually, the the threat could not be seen as mortal for the regime. It, it would seem that the, the threat was uh, used, this threat as, uh, even though it was a, a, a small, and I, one would think, was used as a pretext to teach Hama and the wider population a lesson about challenging uh, the regime. Hama was you know, seen as uh, uh, not loyal to the regime, not because only because of the uh, that small group. It had uh, it was uh, had sympathies, you know, within the population to the Muslim Muslim Brotherhood, and but it also had sim- there they had the historical presence of communist uh, leaning uh, factions and so on. So it wasn't it was not seen as loyal. Uh, uh, 
by virtue of its different political allegiances. And it was uh, then targeted, uh, the population was targeted um, to set an example, I think, for the you know rest of the country. And we have to also kind of make note of the fact that before the attack on Hama, the, the regime was engaging in violence um, against non-religious uh, opposition. So, in fact, the kidnapping of leftist uh, opponents goes to the mid-1970s and continued uh, kidnapping and incarceration, continued um, uh, after uh, the Hama events um, onto the late 80s and early 90s, and that the the uh, the prison population was not only you know was not just the um, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, but uh, actually there were large numbers of people who belonged to leftist uh, uh, groups as well, dissident leftist groups as well as dissident Baathist. Uh, uh, individuals, um, political opponents of the regime. Uh, but the, the violence, you know, as, a, as I argue in the book, as a kind of a mechanism of rule, the massacre, was to teach lessons about, um, you know, any challenge uh, or any attempt to bring down the regime or to destabilize the regime uh, would be met by complete annihilation. And that's what happened in Hama. I mean, the violence in Hama, we don't, again, you know, we don't have definitive uh, numbers of, you know, uh, or data on the numbers. The, you know, the estimates are somewhere between 10,000 people to 30,000 uh, were killed uh, in the assault on Hama in those four weeks in 1982, in February of 1982. Um the documentation, the records show that there was killing throughout. It was a kind of an open killing field, uh, uh, killings th- uh, throughout the, the city. Uh, entire buildings were emptied. Its uh, inhabitants were taken out to the streets and they were shot. Entire Again, uh, various groups of people were uh, amassed in stadiums and, ver- and, and uh, in open fields and, 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 and killed. Um, so it was uh, kind of a uh, the, there wasn't just one massacre, but you know, there were a series of massacres committed uh, on a daily basis uh, over an extended period of time. So this is not a case of a regime that can't control its troops, of something spiraling out of control. That this is intentional. That this is this is a desired uh, aim of the regime. To, to take this as far as possible to teach a broader lesson. I think that's how Syrians understood it, uh, as well as, of course, uh, you know, if you look at this as a being, a, uh, you know, the uprising, what happened during the 2011 uprising and, it, uh, and, and the period that followed that seemed to confirm that the, the, this is a modality or a mode of governing the population that, uh, uh, and of course, uh, if we go back to the pronouncement of the regime in, 19, in 1980, uh, um, before the kind of the Sultan in 1982, in response to the growing Islamist challenge, uh, as well as you know the growing opposition to the regime from various factions, as, uh, uh, we have someone like uh, Hafez al-Assad's brother, Rifat al-Assad. Um, uh, referring admiringly to uh, both the, uh, the Nazi 
case as well as to the Stalinist uh, model as a models for uh, emulation, whereby they sacrificed segments of the population that were not uh, seen as useful, uh, that were uh, dissident or um, uh, uh, not loyal. Uh, and that was a model to be followed. Uh, he'd also, in that speech, in the speech that he made to the Baptist Party in 1980, he'd recommended mass incarceration of all of those who were what he called as nationally ill or uh, uh, diseased in their nationalism. Uh, there was something wrong about their sense of nationalism as far as in, 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 the, uh, in his eyes and the kind of uh, the assessment of the Baptist, uh, the ruling Baptist. Uh, so m mass imprisonment, uh, you know, following, uh, again, you know, kind of a totalitarian uh, models uh, was something that he advocated for re-educating the subjects. And again, I think this is important to stress that your emphasis here is on these modern notions of of, of science and wrapped up in, in, in understandings of the nation and which populations threaten to disease or sicken the nation and need to be cut out of it versus looking at this as just uh, another example of endless sectarian hatreds. Uh, absolutely, because I, I, there is a definitely a kind of a, re, a sectarian reading of the conflict uh, um, of the uprising or even previously. Uh, but it's this reading is it cannot be upheld given that uh, uh, it is true that the Ba'athist regime uh, of Hafez al-Assad was uh, kind of predominantly or uh, had a strong uh, uh, Alawi component or people who come from Alawi background. But the, it, it, it would be mistaken to think actually that uh, the Alawi um, sect, which is kind of a minority sect with, uh, within Islam, that that Alawi sect governed or ruled the country. Uh, so, yes, some of the main figures of the regime came from that background, but the sect as a whole actually uh, was not ruled, and, if, and most of it were, you know, lived as much in poverty, isolated and peripheral, uh, as the rest of the population. And out of that, also, there were many opponents and dissidents of the, uh, those who were op uh, kind of opposed to the regime and uh, uh, joined uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Many of them were in the um, uh, Labour Communist Party, and many of them were in, uh, incarcerated. Uh, I, I, you know, a large number of them were incarcerated. So it's a simplistic reading to see this in sectarian terms. Um, does the regime play the sectarian card? You know, uh, uh, undoubtedly, in uh, through its discourses about the threat that um, uh, Islamists pose to the larger population, uh, and kind of uh, read all conflicts or kind of projected on many of the conflicts that they came from radical Islamists or extremists and who were a threat not just to the regime but to the minority. So definitely, the regime. Uh, played the sectarian card, but um, it's the regime's practices were uh, of violence were against all its opponents, whether they were secular, secular or religious, and, and whether they came from the uh, the majority Sunni population or from the minorities, um, uh, the uh, Alawis or Druze or. Uh, 
uh, Ismailis, um, as, you know, or Christian, for that matter. And, and it had opponents from all of these segments of the population. But the regime also sectarianized the population in the sense that it co-opted um, segments of the population on sectarian lines uh, so that it recruited um, in a kind of army divisions on sectarian lines. It uh, is, uh, um, co-opted uh, uh, loyalists on sectarian lines uh, or, or on tribal lines. And that's part of this fragmentation of uh, the population and this kind of, a, as I said, civil civil war regime, because it pitted segments of the population against each other uh, by co-opting some uh, and marginalizing or kind of excluding, uh, preferalizing others. But if it's co-opting them, it's not an allegiance that has anything to do with re- religion. It's it's jobs, it's housing, it's all kinds of other things, uh, the ways in which it works. But just to go back to Hama, uh, if the regime wants to use Hama as a lesson for, for disloyalty, why not remember it endlessly? I mean, you stress that that it's the event is silenced, at least officially, that it's not even referred to in terms other than the events. Why not ha- have it out there as, as an endless reminder to what happens? Um, why silence it? Um, I think the silencing was part of creating this um, atmosphere of fear in the sense that people knew what happened and what would happen should they try again to challenge the regime. Uh, and so uh, it had set the terms of what it's it kind of um, framed or established the official narrative. Uh, and there was nothing to go back to revisit, uh, commemorate or revise. There was an official narrative that um, this was a extreme Islamist uprising, which the regime then kind of the regime and the people uh, responded to because the regime mobilized actually, again, as I said, uh, parts of the population, armed parts of the population to be part of this fight, quote unquote, against uh, any Islamist opposition, but all opposition. So uh, once this kind of uh, narrative was established, uh, there was also no, no opening to discuss or talk about this. It was um, kind of there, there was an official narrative, um, and it wasn't open to discussion. And uh, and also, I think part of it was just the kind of the ambiguity and the lack of clarity of what exactly happened, the level of the scope of violence. People knew that something unspeakable happened outside of Hammer, but the details of what happened and. Um, remained unknown. And I think that was part of creating this atmosphere of fear that something uh, horrific, you know, some horror happened uh, and that was the price of opposition. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think that that's kind of the ambiguity, the silencing, uh, where also, um, and the uncertainty uh, worked well, or to the benefit of the regime, or is seen as as beneficial in the sense of um, uh, the mystery surrounding or the lack of information on the details uh, made it even 
a more scary or uh, more um, menacing uh, and looming large over kind of Syrians about what, you know, the possibility of what would, would happen to them should they challenge or question the regime. This is a point you make throughout your book, that maybe the more you leave to the imagination, the more fear grows, the more powerful it, it is as an instrument for the regime. Yes. I, I mean, I think that, uh, as I mentioned, the Syrians lived with the fear of uh, Hama being repeated, even though that you know many didn't know what happened exactly in Hama because it was silenced and it wasn't talking talked about. Uh, so the idea of you know that you know doing Hama again was something that you know ordinary Syrians um, feared, uh, and that was constrained on them in terms of their ability to speak up, uh, to speak to one another, or to challenge or question the regime. Yeah, here you're getting to my my next question, because you've talked about uh, extreme forms of violence uh, and control through prisons, through massacres, but there are also ordinary forms of, of violence that affect the bulk of the population. And, and, uh, and you've talked a little bit about surveillance and monitoring. And uh, a lot of this is wrapped up in how Syrians who grew up under the Assads remember that past, going through the school system, their family life, how they navigated everyday walks through the communities where they lived. Could you Talk a little bit about what were these mechanisms of control? How did they shape people who grew up in that context, who had to survive within that context? Well, growing up within the system um, was some, something when I did research in Syria, was something that loomed really larger. Syrians remember that uh, pe- the, the, the period of their childhood, um, the, the time of uh, the schools, uh, going to schools and the militarization of school. And it had affected them deeply. These memories affected them. They lived with them. And they were, for some of them, were traumatic. I do remember um, uh, some of the people I interviewed. And this was in the mid-2000s, so before the uprising. And one of the people that I interviewed who, you know, we were talking about the memories of growing up under Hafez al-Assad. And uh, the main thing she, or one of the main things she remembered um, was the schooling, you know, the military uniform, the shouting of slogans, and uh, attending military training classes and civic classes in which they were taught uh, Hafez al-Assad sayings and the slogans of the Ba'ath and the political line of the Ba'ath and so on. But while remembering some of that, I, you know, uh, some of it was also memories of violence because uh, they were punished for the smallest um, uh, mistakes. Uh, in If they repeated the sayings wrong, for example, there was physical violence. They were asked to spy on one another, to report on one another. Uh, and so this experience, when recalled, I remember this uh, uh, one of my interviews actually had tears in her eyes in remembering that. Uh, another that I interviewed under the after, after the uprising, and so this is a kind of a younger generation at that time. She said, "Well, I didn't remember. I, did, I didn't realize how festered my memory was, you know. So, and, and, and it was, I thought this was very powerful um, uh, idiom, you know, to talk about one's memory as was kind of a." Um, uh, festered as, as having or festering as having something 
uh, wounded and um, uh, unhealthy in any in, in way. And it troubled, so it troubled those such memories troubled them. But what was what was left with them was this, you know, to, to remember, you know, to kind of again, you know, the the power or the the terms uh, of, you know, how they were supposed to be acting in um, in relationship to each other and the regime. Uh, so the militarization of the school. The watchers, the people, you know, the fact that there were watchers in in schools, they were in, in all um, uh, government ministries, and uh, um, uh, and the fear of watchers and the the report writers, and and this found its place in the family as well. Families uh, counseled their children not to talk about politics. Um, they they had these uh, sayings that walls had ears, uh, so that actually they couldn't even you know they didn't want them to speak even within the, the family itself. They didn't want them to talk about their experiences or their ideas or thoughts. Uh, and they counseled them. You know, one of their saying was to walk by the wall, meaning you know kind of make yourself invisible. Don't make yourself visible uh, because then you could also uh, uh, you know expose yourself to danger. So this this sense of being exposed to danger, precarity in just the simplest of carrying any simple task. Uh, Going along with that is just, you know, there was a securitization of everything. So all activities needed a security permit, or most activities. So, you know, to open a... uh, Real estate agency to act as, to 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 uh, to be a babysitter to be a photographer an ambulance photographer very very simple tasks that require securitization but it also left this people who are doing these tasks at the mercy of the security um, forces who would pro- provide them with the permits because they recruited from among this population to be the watchers and the reporters. Um, so all of this kind of be, was part of the memories of growing up and left uh, ordinary Syrians uh, with a lot to reckon with in, in terms of you know how implicated they were in that history and what responsibilities they had. So if you look at Syria in the present day, I mean, is your sense that nothing has changed? Yeah, this is a great question. Um in the sense that it is, it seems counter, counterintuitive to to say that the regime has learned nothing from the last ten years. Doesn't um, Bashir uh, ends emergency rule as a concession to try to to try to uh, respond to the to the uprising originally? Yes. Uh, so there were the 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 regime in Bashar al-Assad introduced some you know measures to uh, signal taking on that he was taking on board some of the demands at the time. So in 2011 he uh, ended the state of emergency. But it, the the reality is that security forces uh, and services continue to be very present and to arrest. So you know pr- imprisonment in Syria actually. Uh, as a much higher, you know, um, as a much higher number of uh, of prisoners in at, at this time than at any other time, you know. So so imprisonment continues, 
uh, and there are people who are thousands that continue to be missing and unaccounted uh, for, and tens of thousands of people who perished in Syrian prisons uh, since the uprising. so the modality itself, the use of, govern, uh, of violence to govern the population continues. We've seen that the Syrian regime and its allies have used extreme violence against the dissident populations or areas that were seen to be dissident. So, uh, you know, there were shelling and, and various other kind of extreme and see in use of siege and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and other uh, extreme uh, practices of violence to the extent that... Uh, you know, maybe nine or ten million uh, Syrians uh, were displaced. Millions of them uh, left the country, and and so that um, this violence you know, since the uprising, you know, was intensified, uh, and uh, a large part of the population paid uh, a, a really uh, big price for either opposing the regime or or being in areas that were dissident or uh, opponents of the regime has the regime changed in its mode of operation relationship to the you know the remaining population uh, or you know the regime of course is now is, has been pursuing conciliation attempts with you know those dissident areas uh, there is no indication that this is happening because Again, you know, those uh, apparatuses of violence, those institutions of violence are very powerful still within the regime. But what is really kind of may come as shocking or surprising is that the Ba'ath Party and its mode of operation is continuing so that, you know, the Ba'ath Party is still kind of the main force in the political sphere and it's... you know, the indoctrination, the branches, the meetings, the all of this, what was happening from the time of Hafez al-Assad, continues on to the present with the, the you know, whoever is left of the population and is under the control of the regime. You have to remember that there are many areas that are, you know, uh, are not under full control of the regime, whether it is in Idlib or in Dara, uh, uh, or in the in, or in the northeast. And so that there, um, uh, there may be spaces for you know alternative um, uh, political uh, uh, groups, uh, but in areas controlled by the regime, uh, on the whole, it is a continuation or of uh, the forms of rule that you know preceded the uprising and continue and continue. And 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 and, and uh, remained after the uprising. Salwa Ismail is professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies in the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. She is the author of *The Rule of Violence: Subjectivity, Memory, and Government in Syria*. Salwa, thank you again for joining this episode of Realms of Memory. Well. Thank you very much for uh, yeah for, for inviting me and I, I yeah I hope that this was uh, um, contributing to uh, uh, to the discussion about memory you know and how it is uh, formative for you know or, or um, shapes how people you know uh, see themselves uh, politically as well as beyond. Next month we'll return to the story of violence and memory. 
we'll hear from Arai Shiler about his recently published book, Victims of Commemoration, The Architecture and Violence of Confronting the Past in Turkey. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Realms of Memory.